Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm happy to have as my guest, singer extraordinaire Peter Foldy. We'll be talking music, travels, the business of music, the ups and downs of being a career entertainer, and we'll get some other insights as well from this world-class talent. So stick around for that and for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who has been there for many decades. Peter Foldy is a multifaceted talent who has been very successful musician, screenwriter, film director, producer, and speaker. He was nominated for two Juno Awards and has had multiple top 10 hits across Canada and the U.S., most notably with his first song, Bondi Junction, which reached number one on the Canadian charts. So thanks for joining me today, Peter. How are you? Dan, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. So uh, how are you doing through this COVID shutdown and all this stuff? I guess uh, difficult. Oh, God, it's, it's so surreal. I mean, it really is. At first, you know, like everybody else, I thought this would last about two weeks and we'd be out of it. Uh, nothing like this has ever happened to the world before. Well, mm-hmm. it did in 1918, but this is really unusual. And uh, living in Los Angeles, it's not as bad because because of the weather. We have a lot of outdoor cafes and outdoor uh, restaurants that one can go to. So, you know, lots of jogging and walking yeah. opportunities. So it's not quite as bad. The lo- temperature is a little cooler here in Toronto, which is where I'm located right now. So. Yeah, it seems a bit like the twilight zone. You're right. I, I never thought anything like this would happen in our lives, and it's just sort of reoriented everything at this point. True, true. Have you been working? Are you uh, happy and healthy, or are you just taking some time off? Uh, I have been working. I've been working on both music and film. Like in the last couple of years, I've had a sort of a busy period. You know, the music, the entertainment business as a whole is very up and down. You work sometimes a lot and then sometimes you do nothing and hope you have enough savings to get by. And uh, I I directed a feature in 2018 in Oklahoma. And then in 2019, I produced two films, one in Los Angeles and one in uh, uh, back in Oklahoma. And I'm planning to do a couple of films in Oklahoma again next year. But again, it's covid covid based it's up to the covid gods whether we can actually get them made but they are filming in oklahoma they're pretty safe about it yeah life sort of goes on there but i've also been doing music i i um you know i kind of tapped into uh, i think what is going on in music in the sense that i was listening to you know sean mendez and justin bieber and taylor swift and people you know her current music makers yeah. and not not going with my sort of what's organic for me like the 70s sounding melodies and i've come up with some really good tracks and yeah i did had a had a song called toxic world which came out in 2019 which was appropriately titled toxic world kind of foretold what we're living in right now and that did well on a bunch of regional stations went top 10 and even went number one at one station here in canada oh nice and it's doing well on Spotify, and then most recently, I've put out a Christmas single, which you know, which is just coming coming out. Yeah, well, good. Well, you've, you've been cold. busy doing lots of different things, and uh, I just wanted to ask you a, a little bit about how that all got started. And, and you're such a multifaceted person. You're kind of, um, I don't know, maybe it's curiosity was your was your main trait that you just were curious about a bunch of different things, and you got into music. And- how far back do you want to go? <laughs> Well, it's interesting. Like I, I always like to know, you know, how how you decided to be a, a professional musician. You know, like a lot of people, there's that sort of defining moment, or there's that time yeah. where you say, you know, that this might work for me. I might be able to do something here. What well, what was that for you? Okay, so my my grandmother 
wanted to be an opera singer when she was a little girl, but her parents didn't let her. So she always had a love of theater and opera. And when I was a little kid, she took me to the opera. And to, to, it, I, I, this was growing up in Budapest, Hungary, and they had like operettas, which were kind of light operas, which you might call them Broadway shows nowadays. And so I always had an interest in music and people who remember me as a kid tell me I used to sing and stuff and it was kind of pretty outgoing. But really it was in Australia that I really sort of got the music bug, just listening to lots of music and just thinking I could sing. I, I didn't know if I could sing. I probably couldn't sing. I, you know, whatever. I'm very, very critical of my own singing as a, yeah. as a rule. Anyway, um, I did go on a little show when I was about 12 called Opportunity Knox, which is a little you know, tiny talent time thing for young kids. And you come on and you, you, you kind of compete. It's like, you know, it was like the precursor of American Idol or Australian Idol. And I went on there and I th think I came second. I sang some hokey song and I think I got some watch or something like that. But that was a very meaningful experience for me because just like it was so exciting to be in a TV studio for the first time ever and to be singing on television it was taped and also uh, to this day i remember the smell of the wood and the paint there's like there was just something very magical and i went oh my god this is what i want and um, when i went to high school i met a kid whose name was trevor gordon and he was my age and he told me that he was a singer and i said cool you know whatever i mean everyone you know everyone's a singer so good good for you but he actually ended up singing on television i used to see him on these like australian you know, variety shows and he would be singing there. And one day he called me up and he said, Hey, I've got these friends and we make these little movies on the weekends. You should come out and meet them. They're really cool. I went, sure. So I go out to his place and his friends turned out to be Morris and Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees. Nice. And I went, Whoa, you know, I, I know these guys, I've seen these guys on television. Now this is before they were really famous. They were yep. struggling like anybody else in Australia. And they, they also weren't they weren't cool in those days. They were. They used to wear these little checkered vests that their mother sewed them, and they were like basically adult entertainers. They they made their living. I don't think they ever went to school, to be honest with yeah. you. They made their living playing in clubs, like sort of adult nightclubs, and yeah. they would come out and sing "Bye Bye Blackbird" or some you know some Mills Brothers song or some some old standards. They weren't singing rock music. They were singing sort of adult, you know, and they had a little. I guess a band behind them and stuff, and they were adult entertainers, but they were super talented. And uh, the Beatles were around by then, and I remember going, you know, I started hanging out with Trevor and the BGs, and usually on weekends and stuff. And I remember being in the room with them, and they burst into like they sang the song was "I Feel Fine" by the Beatles, and I, I'd never heard anybody sing harmony like that. Three people blend like that in a room. It was just amazing, you know. Those brothers, you know, because they're brothers, like they just had this plan. Anyway, so they, Trevor and the Bee Gees were a huge inspiration. And I, I said, I got, this is what I want. This is what I got to do, you know. So I started learning guitar and Trevor, Trevor helped me and everything like that. And, you know, but then eventually my family moved to Toronto. So yeah, for those that don't know, you, you came from Hungary and then you ended up in Australia and then you moved to, Van uh, to Toronto? Yeah, Toronto. Yeah, 10 years in Australia where I had a pretty good upbringing, pretty good, you know, life. It's a beautiful place to grow up. And I had these experiences with the Bee Gees. And I also um, 
was able to land some work as a as a kid actor in TV commercials. So I was, you know, my I was definitely from an early age sort of interested in the business. So when I came to Canada, I was kind of lost for a couple of years, but I ended up going to film school at York University and playing in a in a band at night with a buddy of mine called Joel Clairfield, and um, he. One day, and and I and I started writing songs. Joel and I wrote songs together, and I was writing some songs on my own. But one day, Joel said, "Look, I, you know, I, I can't do the band anymore. My parents are insisting I go to medical school. I got accepted to University of Toronto, and I have to quit." So I was pretty upset, but it kind of inspired me even more. So I started using the little studio in the uh, at the film school to demo, and I demoed like four four songs, and one of them was Bondi Junction. And uh, it, it was very serendipitous, really, because I, I finished the demo. And like the next day, I called this lady uh, called Margaret, Margaret Topping. She was a music publisher who had published one of my songs, which I thought was a really big deal. And I said, look, Margaret, I just finished this demo. And she said, I've got someone in my office who just started a label. You should give him a call. He's looking for Canadian talent. So I called this guy the following week, went to see him. And he he was like one of these old school record guys, wore a suit and tie, smoked yeah. a pipe, had a mustache, a very didn't didn't let on. And he was listening, standing by the window, listening to you know Bondi Junction. He goes, yeah, I like this. He said, leave it with me for a few days. I'll let you know what he says. I, he says, I think we have some bands that might record this. And I went, oh wow, that's so exciting. You know, yeah. I, I never imagined that I would be the artist. Calls me four days later. Says, can you come in? So I go in and meet him and his partner. And he says, we want to sign you to a record deal, and we can do something. We want to record two songs to start, and we're going to get the best. Uh, session players in Toronto. We're going to, you know, spend money on this and really make this successful. And I, of course, I was blown away. I was like, when well, I, you must have been just thrilled ecsta- with that. Ecstatic, home. ecstatic. I, I went home and told my parents. They didn't understand what I was talking about. Well, what about school? I said, well, I'll keep going to school, you know. But they didn't really get the impact of getting a record deal, you know. And this is, yeah. you know, in, in the 70s. So, the you know, we made the record and I went away uh went away skiing in France, actually, and came back and the record was slow to come out. It it didn't come out for a while. The label was having some issues. I thought, well, you know, this was short-lived. But eventually the the, the, uh, record came out and just uh, had a momentum to it. It just started, you know, building and building. First, it was like one little station. Then it was five little stations. And it was a bigger station. Then Chum added it, you know. Then that went across the country. And suddenly, like, it, it, and also Canadian content was pretty new at the time. And not many people were doing the kind of music I was doing. I was doing real pop music in the vein of, let's say, Donny Osmond or somebody like that, yeah. or Herman's Hermits. And everybody else was kind of Backman Turner. Everybody else was a rock band. And there weren't many sort of single artists, male artists doing that kind of pop music. So I guess there was a need and Bondi Junction just resonated and it really took off and it hit uh, number one on RPM's uh, adult contemporary chart and it was top 10 and number one in a bunch of individual stations across Canada. So suddenly I had to quit school, you know, because the label wanted me on the road. They wanted me on television and it was like suddenly, you know, I had quit film school in my last year and uh, dove into the music business. Well, it was, it was probably a, a fine thing to do because the opportunity Two Juno, uh, you were nominated for two Junos, including a Canadian Pop Music Single of the Year, and then you had the uh, in 1973 you got the BMI Canada Certificate of Honor too. That must have been a thrill for you as well. 
It, it was. It was. It was. You know, pretty amazing. It was like pretty heady stuff. The weird thing was, like up to that point, I had been playing in bands with three other guys, and there was three other guys to share all this with. And suddenly, it was just me by myself. So that was kind of a drag, not having anyone to share all that stuff with. And my parents, you know, they came from Hungary, and they were, you know, working class people, and they didn't, you know, they were excited when they heard me on the radio, but they didn't, you know, really didn't get the impact of how amazing it was to have this happen yeah. you know so yeah, yeah. but it, it was it was great and that's neat reading some of the uh, youtube comments and stuff uh, bondi junction that was some people's song like they considered that their their love song for reflecting their experience too which is kind of neat so you really got yourself into other people's lives in that way and I didn't realize it at the time. It took Facebook to make me realize it. That's why I kind of came back to the music scene now, because I got a lot of comments like that. When Facebook came out, people were writing things like that to me. And I thought, wow, I got to do another record. And just around that time, I mean, first of all, a lot happened in between Facebook and Bondi Junction. I signed with several other labels. I was on Capital EMI. I was on Polydor in the U.S. I, RCA Records signed me directly in the U.S. So I had other, a couple of other top 10 records and lots of adventures, a lot of tours. I opened for the Holly. So I had a really amazing 10-year run in the music business. But yeah. when I... When you know all this stuff, all these comments started coming in because the internet was was flowing. Um, a label approached me in Toronto asking if I would be interested in doing a best of Peter Foley, like you know licensing all my old tracks and just putting them out. Sure. So we, we we worked on that, and that took a while to put out, but that was really nice. I mean, it was well received, and so since then, which was that was in the mid two thousand, like two thousand five or something like that. I, I've just been moving forward with doing music along with film well, that's cool and you know it's funny like I, I often say we do a retro show with with my band and one of the things i always say is i like the saying that uh, songs are hooks to hang memories on and the fact that you were able to to write some songs that were hooks for people to hang memories on and then for them to come back years later and say hey you know that really affected me when i was a, a teenager and I listened to that song. It's it's a really good feeling, and and I didn't realize at the time that Bondi Junction would would have that kind of impact. And it's amazing that people still on Facebook say nice things about it. You know, that, I mean, there were a few haters because that's just the nature of the world. But um, you know, it's amazing to me that uh, yeah, I wrote something that has impacted people's yeah. lives in a small way. And then you did Roxanne. I listened to that. It's a kind of a pop song in the 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 seventy three version. I guess it was. We're talking seventy two. No, Roxanne. Here, so right? Bondi Junction was seventy three. Okay. And Roxanne came out in seventy six, and that was on uh, Capital EMI. Okay. And you know that almost became a hit in the states. I mean, it got great reviews. It had a bunch of stations on it. Uh, Polydor in the states put it out, and they were really pushing it, and it just didn't connect because there is so much more. In the you know to the American music scene, I mean, there's independent promotion. There's just working the radio stations, being on the road, all that stuff, which I wasn't doing. Polydor was working it, but I didn't. I had a manager, but I really didn't have the full arsenal of of people behind it to make it to really drive it home. Well, but then sorry. Well, fair point. I mean, a lot of people talk about making it in the U.S., especially Canadians going down to the U.S. It's a conversation that they all have. And uh, it's it's a, just a different world, right? So your experience in there was uh, was it just a, a, a smaller fish in a bigger pond kind of uh, idea? 
Very much so. Got good reviews, but I've since learned like it takes hundreds of thousands of dollars or maybe millions of dollars to drive a record up the char- like the wow. Billboard charting in in the states. But you know, to a, let's say to a big label with an artist, just hypothetically, Sean Mendez, of course they'll invest two million dollars to make Sean huge with a single record because then they're going to make they're going to make two hundred million when he goes out on tour. So, so it's you know two million is a small investment in that regard. So I I didn't have anything like that. And I didn't also understand the business. I was unfortunately naive and I made some bad choices. One of them was to walk off Capitol Records. I, I, like, I had a manager who advised me to leave the label, that he would get me a better deal in the States. And then 30 days later, he said, I can't be your manager anymore. I'm getting divorced and uh, I have to save my marriage. So he left me high and dry. So I was completely shattered and lost. And people ask me, why didn't you call Capitol and ask to come back? And I don't know the, the answer to that. But that was like really one of the biggest regrets of my life, like walking away from a major label like Capitol EMI. But then things did work out i got signed by rca and i you know continued some momentum but yeah. then one day it all ground to a halt you know it just like kind of all ended well it's funny how the music business goes like that and and so the song uh, julianne i was listening to that as well that was on your second so that was also capital emi that, okay. so i did Ro- roxanne which you know hit a lot of charts across canada a lot of people do know that song. It's not the police song. It's a different. Yeah. It's my my own version of Roxanne. And then Capital wanted me to record Julianne, which was written by the people who uh, produced and wrote for uh, the Bay City Rollers. Right. So I, I recorded that, and you know it was released in the winter. It's a real summer song, so that was a big mistake. It really should have come out in the summer. It came out in the winter. Chump played it. All the Chump stations played it, but not many other people responded to it. But there are people who know it and love it. Well, it's it got you know? the bluesy. It's almost a rockabilly feel. It's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's, it's a fun song. And then I had some other ones that I'm really fond of that didn't do much. Uh, I had a track called Love City, which I recorded for RCA at, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which is yeah. a really good record. It's kind of a BG sounding, yeah. like a how deep is your love kind of sounding record. And then I followed that up with one of my favorite songs, School of Love, which is the biggest stiff I've ever had. I mean, I think, that song's made me two dollars. No kidding, it just died, and it was such a good song. It's funny how and, that you know, works. That, uh, you you yeah. do your best. You put out songs that you think are good, and then and then you have to let it, sort of people make their own decision. But uh, Love City's real bouncy love song and really nice harmonies. I think it sounds great. Thank you. Yeah, I had on, on School of Love, and I had, not on Love City, but School of Love. I had uh, Peter Beckett, you know, from Player. You know, Baby, yeah. come back. Yeah. That guy, he sang on it. And another good friend of mine, Steve Kipner, who wrote the song "Let's Get Physical" for Olivia Newton-John. So I had some serious session guys on it, serious players on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then that led me into the film world. So everything kind of happens for a reason. Yeah. Well, good. I want to talk to you about that. So uh, let's just take a quick break and uh, we'll come right back with Peter Foldy. Check out songs from today's artists and other Canadian music makers of the 60s through the 80s on Dusty Discs Radio. Each Tuesday and Thursday, it's nothing but Canadian oldies. You'll hear songs you know, others you've forgotten, and maybe a tune or two you've never heard. Listen online at DustyDiscsRadio.com or download the TuneIn Radio app to your tablet or smartphone. Search Dusty Discs Radio and make it a favorite. Let's get back to our special guest. All right, welcome back. We're talking to Peter Foldy about his illustrious career and the music in the 1970s and having all those great songs and, and having an impact, which is 
you know, what every musician dreams of, right? Every, every little kid picks up a guitar or gets a piano and, and says, I can write some songs that might touch people in some way. And, and you were able to do that. So it's a, it's a real cool thing for you. And then of course you talk about the, the business of it and the old saying, you know, the suits are the ones that wreck the music business or the, the decisions that we make along the way. And you said that you, that you let go of your one record deal and, and it led to a different one and, and things didn't work out quite the way that you wanted to. True. Very true. But what happened after that all ended when I, my deal with RCA ended, I, you know, being young and in the music business and, you know, you, I wasn't thinking in terms of, I, I, I didn't have the mindset of I should buy a piece of property. You know, I should do something to yeah. invest my money. I lived on it. I, you know, I didn't make a fortune like people might think you would, but I, you know, you know, so I had some money, but eventually it was gone and I had to go find some, some way to make, make money. But I also wanted to leave myself time to pursue music. So I got a job selling chocolate candy on the telephone. I was oh, a neat. telephone salesman selling chocolate mints. Well, it wasn't neat. It was depressing <laughs> something thing about ever, having, people. Most people uh, wouldn't know, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Having been like a so-called rock star, a pop star, or something, and now I'm getting up at seven in the morning and call, you know, going to this phone room, going, "Hi, good morning. Are you ready to reorder your phaser mints? Because we have a special this, you know, blah blah blah." So I'm sitting there, just depressed as hell, and some guy taps, a guy taps me on the shoulder, and he says, "Excuse me, but are you Peter Foldy?" And I went, oh, I was mortified. I went, oh my God, uh, yes. He goes, I-, I know you. I have your records. I'm from Toronto and, and you know, I've got Bondi Junction. And what are you doing here? And I went, I, I don't know. What am I doing here? You know, I want to die, basically. But I became friends with this kid. His name was Mark Wortman. And he one day came into work with a movie poster that he and his brother had just did all the music for it. The music supervised it. And I, went, I was really impressed. I went, wow, that's amazing. And he said, yeah, I'm working for these people and they make these little half a million dollar movies and, um, you know, they're looking for another script. I said, well, I, you know, I, I'm studied film and I've got this script. A friend of mine wrote a teen comedy and he said, really? He said, can I read it? So I give it to him. He said, mind if I show it to them? I said, sure. Comes back about three weeks later. He said, dude, they want to buy it. They'll give you 25,000 bucks. Oh. What? Yeah. You know, so quickly sold that script. I got to be the associate producer on it, worked on the movie for about a year. I learned more in three days on that set than I did the three years at York University. Yeah. And, you know, that launched my film career. I went on from there to like, and that film was a big, it was a terrible movie, but a big success at the time. It was called Hot Moves, H-O-T. And it's kind of like a like an American pie. Four kids make a pact to lose their virginity. It was yeah. It's a hokey movie, but, you know, it's got some, some tits and ass in it. And, you know, people yeah. responded to it. Video was just new, and so people could rent this movie and take it home. So anyway, the movie made about $10 million on a $450,000 budget. Yeah. You know, from there, I went and produced some other things and eventually, you know, began directing. And I, you know, I, I'm still doing that, as I said. So you, know, that's so you found a way to bring the music and the film together. In, in a sense, yes, because I do try and use music I control in some of the films I work on. I've music supervised five, maybe five or six films now where I, I, look, I don't like force my music onto the production, but I give them an option. Hey, I've got a song that might work for this, you know, but also yeah. as a music supervisor, you look to outside sources and try and get the, the things that are appropriate that work, you know, so, yeah. you know, so well, 
did the song Reach for the Stars. I saw Adam Carolla. With, that was a movie with Adam Carolla, right? Right. So that was a short film. Um, like I had a real dry spell uh, and I nothing was going on in film. Very hard to get you know projects made. And, you know, this second time around, like after I did, like in, through the 90s, I directed a film almost every year. So at this time I did save up some money. So I had something to live off. But when I was going through a dry spell, I... Um, I was just looking to do something. And a friend of mine said, you can direct a short film. Uh, you know, you should do a short film. You know, at least like this guy had done a short film, got him a really good agent and he got to do some features from that. He said, do a short film. People respond to it. So uh, I just, I wrote this funny little script about what happened to me once when I smoked pot. I had this terrible anxiety attack. I, it's a long story, but anyway, it's, it's kind of in that movie. And so I, I did that uh, I did that short film. I got an Adam Carolla and it was a cute little movie. I wrote all the songs for it. And it's a 15 minute short that used to be online. It's offline. I'm going to put it back on YouTube, but it's called head, heart and balls or why I, why I gave up okay. pot. head, heart and balls, but it's a fun movie. I'll put it up online. I'll, t- I'll send you the link. Well, the, the song is online, like the reach for the stars, the, the video for the song. Is online. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, well, the song was on there, and I thought, yeah, it's it's such a neat thing that you were able to bring both together and put some of your songs in there. Yeah, and in that one in particular, then you did, uh, then you did Nine Lives. Right. right. So after, um, so after this Best of Peter Foley thing came out, which had about fourteen tracks on it, and we licensed a bunch of music from RCA, licensed a bunch of music from Capital EMI, you know, just collected all my old stuff and put a couple of new Christmas songs on there as well. And did you redo, was it remastered or re-recorded? It was remastered. Uh, and I recorded two new songs, a Christmas song and a ballad called, is there love in your heart? So that came out and I had like a really nice time. I, you know, the label sent me across Canada. I did a bunch of like morning, uh, television shows. I did it in Vancouver and Halifax and Toronto I forget where else, uh, Edmonton, Calgary, you know, I had a great time and everybody was very sweet and very receptive. And everybody said, Oh, I remember Bondi Junction. So I thought I got to do more music. Now it took a long time, but I ended up, you know, working on nine lives, probably started it in, Oh, I don't know, 2014. And it took about four years to finish it because I was just doing it sort of with my own money, part-time. I'd write a song, I'd bring in some really good musicians, or I'd use, you know, producers who could, you know, work the synthesizers and all that stuff. took a long time, but I'm pretty pleased with the album. Uh, It's got a lot of interesting material on it. Thing was, it had a lot of different genres on it as well. It had a ballad, it had a sort of a current sounding thing, it had a you know, I had just a lot of different feels on it. So it yeah, wasn't... Well, Carly's a bouncy up tune, right? Exactly. So yeah. I said, Carly was sort of the single, you know, I kind of had somebody, a Canadian promotion guy worked that for me. And we got some airplay on that in a bunch of places, not just in Canada, but also like, you know, like in France and a few other places played it. But as I said, it's so hard, so much harder now to penetrate radio because there's oh, so much yeah. involved getting yeah. a song radio it's just a whole bunch of well the whole world the whole music world is just completely saturated right i mean you're fighting the saturation and of course apathy because you do songs from the heart and think they're they're good songs and they are and then people kind of you know trying to get interest is just there's so many shiny objects out there now trying to get people to look at your shiny object is is more challenging than ever i think now absolutely and you know everybody can 
demo at home. There's Garage Band. There's all kinds of programs. You don't even have to be a player. I mean, you can get loops that play play things for you. So, yeah, you're competing with millions and millions of people. Yeah. But um, I I, th- I feel there's new hope with Spotify. Um, I, I think Spotify is an interesting medium. I think it's going to replace radio because I don't think anybody, not too many people listen to radio now. I think they basically listen in the car maybe or, you know, somebody, you know, I sometimes listen at home, but generally I listen to Spotify. And I think there's a lot of amazing talent on Spotify that if you resonate, you can get millions and millions of streams and actually make a little bit of money. Yeah. And a very good friend of mine did just that. He put out his own record about five, six years ago and when Spotify was still new and somehow now has on this first song 550 million streams, which is oh, worth wow. close, close to $2 million. That, of course, got him a label deal. He's with Columbia and they put out tracks every couple of months and each one gets 50 million, 60 million. They're not really a well-known band. They're called Friendship, F-R-E-N-S-H-I-P, like there's no yeah. D, Friendship. So that's the thing. I, I ask people, have you heard of Friendship? No, not really. Have you heard of this song? The first one is called uh, Capsize. No. I play them the song. Have you heard the song? No. I said, dude, it's got 550 million streams on it. They go, what? You know, so yeah. it's. It, I find that very inspiring. Like, like to me, I would be very happy at this point in my life to have some tracks on Spotify that resonate and get great streams and people hear them. Well, you know, listening to your catalog and, and going through it, the song In Too Deep, you know, like I, I love the harmonies. Like I'm, I'm a, a vocal guy, you know, I like the singing and the harmonies and stuff. And you listen to songs like that and just really nice harmonies. Oh, thank you so much. I, you know, I've always loved harmonies, having known the Bee Gees and being a Beatle fan and the Everly Brothers and people like that. I think harmony is amazing. So, yeah. well, like in, with Roxanne too, like you redid Roxanne with with the piano and stuff. It's kind of got an Al Stewart kind of feel to it, and then of course, really nice harmonies. And then you kind of updated it, right? Yeah, uh, you know. That's how that Nine Lives album started. I was just going to actually do that one song. I thought, I'm going to redo Roxanne, just that one song. And then I did that, and that really kind of, actually, it took me a long time to nail that. But as I was working on that, I was writing some other things, and I would bring, in to, bring them into my producer. And she'd go, yeah, let's record that. You know, But of course, every song I record is like, two thousand dollars let's say whatever you know it costs yeah. money yeah you know so you, 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 you i mean the way i look at it look some people go stamp collecting some people go fishing or skiing i make records yeah. yes it's it's a hobby but it also has the potential to be profitable if i'm lucky well yeah and it sounds like there was some real effort put into it i mean the production is excellent the piano's great the harmonies are really nice and it's it's i like the updated version it's it's more mature it, it, it sort of reflects the maturity I do too. And you know what? Uh, the Toronto Star gave that a great review and a lot of people gave that CD a great review, which was very gratifying because honestly, back in the Bondi Junction days, you know, Bondi Junction was a piece of bubblegum in a sense. It was a little pop record, a Donny Osmond-ish record. You know, it didn't get, it got a lot of sales. It got a lot of air, a lot of airplay. I mean, there was only one type of radio in those days. It was top 40 radio. If yeah. you were on it, you were getting played 15 times a day on every station. And that was decent 
decent airplay money, you know, if you're the writer. Uh, and um, But, you know, Bondi Junction, I don't think, in my mind at least, got a lot of respect, you know, and I sounded very young on it, which I do happen to still have a young sounding voice. And, yeah. You know, I think a lot of people thought it was like a little piece of fluff, you know. Well, it's but, a sugary love song, but I exactly. mean, there's lots of sugary love songs. The world turns around on sugary love songs. There is, but ironically, you know, years later, the fact that people can say, I met my wife listening to this, like, I like listen to this Absolutely. one, Dan, I had a guy pop up on my messenger on Facebook, and he sent a video, and I go, what's this? And it was this guy and his wife in Bondi Junction, which is a place in Australia and Sydney, yeah. And they're standing in front of the Bondi Junction sign singing Bondi Junction. And he said, I wanted to send you this because my wife, it was our favorite song when we were dating. And we had to come to Bondi Junction and we wanted to send you this. I mean, that how cool is that? Seriously. That's, you know, such validation. It's so awesome, you know. But, uh, yeah, so I'm very proud of that. And then you did, uh, so then just moving, moving forward, you did Toxic World. And again, excellent video, really good production. Thank you. Thank you. That was put together by a really, now a really good friend of mine, a kid called Joel Gavaya, who I met through this label that put out the best of Peter Foldy. And they said, you got to meet Joel. He's really cool. And he and I become great friends. And he has, uh, he made that really nice little video for me. And, uh, you know, that, that was awesome. You know, some I, shots in New York and around the world. And then I just listened to the production first, you know, like it's obviously quality production. I just, I listened to it on my speakers here and it was just really good. So, and the acoustic guitar is really nice when it comes in the beginning. And it, Thank you. So that was produced by this guy called Miklos Malik and he works with Ariana Grande and Jennifer Lopez. He's a top music producer. Cool. He's, he's a Hungarian guy, actually. He was on like Hungarian Idol. He was one of the judges. He's a, he's a celebrity in Hungary. So I worked with him and he worked my ass off, dude. He, he said, nope, don't buy it. Sing it again. <laughs> nope, don't believe it. One more time. I, so where I, did you record it? Uh, I recorded most of the vocals in the same place, Melrose Music Recorders, which is where I did Nine Lives. But then I could not find... I could not find, I couldn't put the icing on the cake of that song. And I finally took it to Miklosh. I had about four different people try to, to bring that song home. And I took it to Miklosh and he nailed it. And he made me re-sing some of the lines in it. Like the opening, yeah. Just he just made me, he said, I want you to do something better here, you know. And so he worked me really hard. And so then I went back to him with this other one I have in the can called Friend Zone, which I would have put out, but COVID hit. And I just didn't think... I didn't want to be the guy during COVID going, hey, everybody, listen to my song. Check check me yeah. out on Spotify. Me, me, me. You know, I just didn't want to do that. So I put it on the back burner. But I did do this Christmas song because I thought maybe by the end of 2020, people will want something happy for, uh, for yeah. the end of the year. But, you know, the, the good news is there's a million Christmas movies being made every year. So, you know, and I'm in the film business. So that's something that will hopefully have a life in the movie movie world as well. So, Absolutely. And making yeah. connections in different ways. So Toxic World, so you recorded that in yes, LA? Yes, that Nine Lives was recorded in okay. LA, so it was Toxic World. But but just getting back to Roxanne, it was the first song that started Nine Lives, the, the, the uh, Roxanne reboot, and uh, Redux, as I called it. And I again, I could not find what it needed, you know. And after we finished 
the whole Nine Lives album, even though that was a song that started it, that's the one we finally finished up with where we, we did f- kind of find the groove. And I just stripped a lot of stuff out, just started with the piano and just built it. And had some really good players on it. I had, uh, not, not on that track, but I had like David Bowie's bass player was on it. I had some really top musicians play on, on those tracks. So. That was awesome. Well, it certainly certainly sounds like it. And I noticed on the redo too is that there's not as many callbacks on the vocals and stuff. You just did it more sort of your voice with the nice layered harmonies. Yeah, I, I'm a little more comfortable with my voice these days. I used to be very insecure about my voice. <clears throat> you know, I never really considered myself a singer, but I know I have an unusual sounding voice. So, like, you know, what I'm saying I, I sound young and wh- whatever. It's a it's a recognizable voice to a certain degree. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's so funny because so many singers say that. I mean, it's a real common thing, right? They hate the sound of my own yeah. voice and, you know, I just wish I would. And and that's probably a good thing in some ways because it makes you more self-critical and it makes you better. And then you get a producer that kicks your butt and yeah. all of a sudden it's even better. I, I'm a pain in the ass in the studio about everything. Like I, I've, my, I, blessed with good ears. And like I'll hear one note. I go, dude, that one note, it's out of tune. No, it isn't. Yeah, yeah, it is. Go back and listen to it. It's out of tune. We got fix that can you just or whatever or like one word i go oh, i'm a little flat i'm a little flat on that you gotta fix it you know or i gotta sing it again you know like i'm just like so anal about this stuff i can't help yeah it. absolutely well that's the way to be that's how we get quality right we need to leave it here but check out the next episode for the second half of my chat with peter foldy catch you then 